Systeria is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. If you like Systeria, why not check out The Rereaders, a fortnightly literary and cultural podcast at www.therereaders.com. <laughs> Nothing is funny. Do not laugh. Serious faces. Welcome to Sisteria, a podcast about women's experiences as creators and consumers of the arts and of culture. I'm Steph Van Schilt. I'm Ronnie Sullivan. Uh, and welcome to the show. Very excited. This is our final episode for this first season. We're sad, but very excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm more pumped because we've covered so much and we've joined, like, enjoyed the company of so many amazing women. Our producers launched one festival. You've almost finished a thesis. Mm. I've coloured my hair on my own a bunch of times, so we all know who the winner is. <laughs> it looks so good. It's wasted <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm too poor to go to a hairdresser. That's that's my news. So it's been a big season. Um, we've got so much more to cover before we even wrap up this season. Uh, we have the wonderful Julie Co on Woo. today. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. I love this podcast. Oh, we love you. Oh, <laughs> big loving. How gross. Sorry, everyone. No, seriously, sorry. Um, before we get on to chatting with you about your career, your writing, your talent, uh, I thought I'd just say to all the listeners, thank you so much. We've literally had thousands of listens, which has blown us away and kind of it's it's been incredible. Scary. Yeah, I know. Get alive. Uh, <laughs> no, honestly, keep listening. And also, if you want to, let us know what you thought of the first season. Let us know what you want to hear more of. Um, just give us an email, sisteriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, sisteriapod. Or um, we're also on Facebook. Give us a like. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes um, or visit our website, sisteriapodcast.com. Chuck ideas our way. We're hoping we'll be back for a second season soon. So um, we're all ears. So, Julie, hello. Hello. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> no worries. No worries at all. <laughs> <laughs> we tend to shine the spotlight on our guest for the first little segment. How do you feel about that? I hate the spotlight. Well, so suck it's going to be up. great. <laughs> suck it up. For those who don't know, Julie Coe is a Sydney based writer. So we're very lucky to have her here in the studios in Melbourne today. Uh, she quit a career in corporate law to pursue writing. Her short stories have appeared in the Best Australian Stories 2014, 15 and 16. Jesus. <laughs> and the Best Australian Comedy Writing in 2016. Her short story collection, Capital Misfits uh, and Portable Curiosity, so she's got two uh, out and about. So be sure to grab those. Portable Curiosities came out last year. Yes. Yeah, it's excellent. We've had a read and we'll be chatting about that today. Um, firstly, before we go any further, I did not know you 
dropped out of a career in corporate law to pursue. All right. I thought that was part of my platform. That was the only thing that was interesting about me. So I went around just telling everyone <laughs> for ages just to get rub that in. Yeah. No, I love it. I didn't know that. But it is such a status thing because I, like, I for a long time when I was starting to be a writer, I kind of just dropped that I was a lawyer because then people in Sydney kind of really respect you then. <laughs> if you just say you're a writer, they just have no – I mean, it's just not a Sydney thing to do really – well, it's so, showing that you have other options, but you're still choosing to write. So you must yeah, be really I get. good. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you do law for? Not long. Like after – so I did politics and law at uni. I actually did the first year of an English literature um, major and was very bored. So I quit and did <laughs> politics um, and did things like nuclear deterrence and stuff, which have been useless Um in my adult life after uni um, and I did law um, and then in fourth year you get like clerkships um, and then you go and get a contract with a firm but I got a contract with a firm um, but I could delay the start so I actually tried to write a novel straight out of uni for two years and it failed and I never finished it. It was really ambitious and I went around saying to people like Oprah's going to interview me on her book club I'm going to be super famous. There's still time. That's not, not true. I, and then Oprah retired. Um, so now I have to get her out of retirement. Well, if anyone can do it, you can. <laughs> um, and so then I started a grad program and I did my first year of two years and I quit after my first year. And then they gave me a part-time job. And so there was a period of time of maybe an, a year and a half where I was spending three days a week in this glass tower in the city and then the other two days at my primary coloured um, creative studio at a um, musician's warehouse. So the, it was just a bit of a mind fuck. Am I allowed to swear? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I just eventually just left it completely. I mean, I went into law thinking, well, I was good at English and I really liked Atticus Finch. So sure, that must be the right <laughs> career for me. But in fact, I'm not particularly logical. So whenever I had to think like a lawyer, it was an extra layer of logic on top. Whereas when I'm a writer, I mean, it's just very natural to me to, to write the way that I do. How much did being a lawyer, I, I already kind of know the answer to this. Oh, good. Having read, All right. Well, no, I don't know exactly <laughs> what you're going to say, but I know part of it, having what you just said about your experience as a lawyer, um, how did it impact on your writing? How has it affected it? Well, the glass tower thing. That's triggered what I was thinking yeah. as well, yeah. That's yeah. the only thing that I know I don't. No well, well, in time, in terms of the um, style of my writing, I think it um, has influenced it a lot. So for five years, it was kind of a combination of uni and working as a lawyer. So for five years at uni, I was writing essays and I, I don't know whether I wrote, read any fiction books at all. I was just reading cases. Well, not even reading cases. I was reading like the cribs because I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I don't even know how I got through uni, but... Um, so there was a certain style and even when I was writing essays, um, I remember my international security lecturer was like a former general, I think, from the Israeli army and um, he put my essay up online as like an example of a good essay for that particular thing we were doing. But then on my comments, he's like rather dry and I think <laughs> that has continued, like the essay writing has continued and then when, when you go to um, a law firm, they have a particular way of drafting mm. um, that's um, 
really concise. And so when I got back to writing, a lot of the problem was that I just couldn't write like I used to when I was a kid. And like my my style was really floral and lovely and sentimental when I was a kid. And then on the other side of that, it just became really even drier and more concise and very, very different from anything that I used to write. It's interesting, like dryness, I think, um, is a kind of word that you might associate with satire which is something we're going to talk about in relation to your work and generally as well um and so I wonder whether when you talk about the primary color kind of creative (laughs) world versus the glass tower um corporate world I think there are quite in quite a lot of your stories there's like this edge about um kind of business and capitalism and like the voraciousness of the world kind of hurtling forward um into those things that's married with this like I guess, like, yeah, technicolor kind of imagination and this, like, creativity that isn't necessarily in the language because I, I still think you're writing... It's like, ideas. Yeah, it's the language. ideas that are big and kind of punchy and, like, blow your head off. And the writing itself is kind of, like, understated in a way that actually makes that message um, more powerful, I oh, would say. I'm glad you think that. Yeah, so we, we are going to talk about the book and maybe that's what we should do now as well. Um, one of the things we wanted to ask about was that the a lot of these stories have been published before and... As we mentioned, you know, been published in the best Australian stories and best comedy writing, but also um, in all, a bunch of different journals and around the place. And uh, I guess we're interested in sort of hearing about how how that came about and how those places might have been um, support bases for you. We're really big advocates for the role of literary journals in Australian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear like what those spaces mean to you and how they've kind of supported your writing career. Yeah. I mean, I... So when I quit law, I was in my writing studio and I was just writing this story called Teapot Pinata, which I don't think has been republished anywhere else, but um, after Sleepers. So this is a story about Sleepers. I've already told you the (laughs) punchline. I always tell everything out of water, which is why I can't tell jokes. But, and this is not a joke, but (laughs) um, I was writing in my studio and I decided that I was going to learn about the literary community through Twitter. Which I think is actually quite a, like quite accurate that a lot of yeah. a lot of communication is happening through Twitter and it's all public. You can just so, yeah. eavesdrop visually so I, on I know, people's convos. I mean, I I could figure out who was friends with who and you know which literary journals people really liked, what people were retweeting. It was a bit stalker like, but that is a key element of my personality. <laughs> and um, I saw a tweet for this thing called the Sleepers Almanac, and submissions were closing. And I thought Sleepers Almanac sounds interesting, so I just sent something in. And before that, I'd been trying to send things to random American literary journals and getting rejections. And Sleepers took my story, and so um, I flew down to Melbourne for the launch because I was so excited. And I realise now that not many people fly to different cities for the, for the launch of an anthology. But I did uh, Sleepers launches. I probably went to four of them, maybe, because I was in four. So they published me every year after that. And um, that was my first kind of breakthrough because I tried other journals and um, had no success. So if Sleepers hadn't published me, I don't know how long I would have kept trying short stories Mm. um and the reason I was writing them was because I'd I'd failed at a novel and I just thought uh better start practicing and I know I mean I have a lot of friends who specialize in the short story and I kind of have as well um but it wasn't intentional and a lot of the time when um, people are talking about short stories they're saying that it's just practice but in fact it's a very very difficult and different art form I don't even know whether it's helping me to figure out how to write a novel but it's certainly helping me figure out it helped me figure out my style 
Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so then after Sleepers, it was like, well, one of the Sleepers stories got into Best Australian Stories. Um, and then I was publishing with, who else did I publish with? The Lifted Brow took the three-dimensional yellow man. Um, and who else? The Canary Press later on, a magazine that I love. Um, Seizure Online took an All one great of publications. Stories. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm missing some, but I will um, mention them later if I remember. I'm just a bit scattered at the moment. That's okay. Yeah, so I, I mean, like, literary journals have really um, helped me establish myself and um, become more confident because I think what I didn't realise is that editors are all different. Like, I always thought when you get edited, it's always the same process and everyone will make the same suggestions. I don't know why I thought that, um, but then you start to realise, you start, I kind of, um, taught myself through working with editors really you kind of know what lines they would want to cut um, ways they might want to restructure things um, and yeah that's how I basically learned to write I mean I did an online course but I've never actually gone to uni to learn I think it's really interesting um, that you were saying about the short story being kind of do you still want to publish a novel essentially Is I that have the- a novel in the works yeah um my, I think when UQP was trying to figure out whether they were going to give me a two book deal, I think that's what they were try, trying to figure out. Um, they asked me to send in a one page synopsis of my novel, and um, the publisher just got back to me and said, um, Either you're really bad at summarizing your work, or this book is too weird to publish. <laughs> so I left it for ages, and um, in fact, I'm doing everything possible to avoid having to start writing it again because I'm not sure about it. I think it's going to be much weirder than it already is. Um, um, so I've got other things I'm doing, like I'm writing an opera. I'm doing oh, just a casual opera. opera. <laughs> Possibly doing I a bit thought, of film writing. Like stalking people on Twitter. I was like, classic oh, I'll say that. <laughs> Tell us about this opera. Um I was asked to write the libretto for a thing called Chop Chef, um, which is a reality TV, uh, a satire of reality TV cooking shows like MasterChef. But but I don't really watch them. So I've been like sort of catching up and, and asking Facebook friends for um, things they find irritating about those shows and putting them into the lyrics. Amazing. I mean, you don't even need to watch it. You can just read the recaps. Yeah, because often I'm just like, I can't actually bother watching this terrible show. But, you know, when you find a good recapper, it's almost more delicious because it's like having a funny friend watching it with you saying like all the cutting things. And you, you don't have to the sit spot. there and watch them repeat it over and over again. And, you know, and the there's outbreaks. no ads. Yeah, I've yeah. been told George on MasterChef says, um, boom, boom, shake the room, which I'm going to try and get in there somewhere. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I know all about MKR because my family watches that, but I don't know anything about MasterChef and other shows. Yeah. You should definitely watch the Food Network then. And some oh, of yes. the American ones. They're just mwah. They're <laughs> so bad. So bad. So I, I saw one recently where the where a guy was just, like he just goes around um doing food challenges. So he just is just eating the whole show, trying oh God, to like eat a twenty pound burger or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Is epic but, meal time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Um what I was also thinking about with the short story thing that interests me is how many people do forget that it is a form unto itself that you do have to teach and learn. Um, I know particularly like in film, filmmakers go to make shorts to eventually get their feature. Yeah. And there's kind of a similar thing, I think, with short form writing. Um, do, you, do you enjoy the short form 
Yeah, I think that's how I ended up with a book accidentally. I mean, I was just going to learn how to write a short story, which could have been five stories, but um, I obviously really like it. It really suits my style because I think a lot of the, some of my stories are quite essayistic because I was trying to figure out how to sort of make my brain write fiction. And I, I found like a little cheat was to basically write an essay, but in fictional form. Um, so that really suits a short story. And I think um, I like uh, just dipping in and out, really, and not having to stay with one thing. I mean, that's my personality. So <laughs> <laughs> dipping in and out. You know, Stalking. like learning to knit, knitting one thing, just abandoning it later. I mean, yeah. it's just my life. I once did a Swedish massage course, never even did the exam. You know, <laughs> I just do things like that all the time. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> also, now I'm like... So you didn't do the exam, but you know how to massage? Yeah, <laughs> I've forgotten completely. It's like I went to China to try and learn Chinese and barely remember anything. So, yeah, that's many why talents. short stories yeah. are good <laughs> for me. Many, <laughs> half talents. Yeah, is that it? Yeah, half talents. I just call myself a Renaissance woman. 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 Women. <laughs> Plural <Many> people. Women. <laughs> <laughs> Two half women make one woman. Yes. Um. We did want to talk about satire a little bit because obviously your form kind of satirizes a bunch of things. I really liked the um, short story that was so self-aware in that it referred to Peter Carey. All oh, right. Um, I really, really loved that. Oh, thank you. It made you. me laugh so, so much. Oh, thank you. Um, how, how do you – like we're going to try and like – put this into political terms it's awful the world feels like it is satirizing <laughs> world itself is right I yeah world is terms. yeah absolutely how do you think that satire is possible at this point in time it's a difficult question I mean it depends on the satire that you're writing um and some of it will be effective and a lot of it which is like mine is just to console people who already agree with me um yeah, so it's a, it's a difficult question. I think a lot of satirists are a little bit um, scared at the moment that their satire is becoming reality. Mm. So I have, uh, and I'm doing things that eventually do become reality, which is creeping me out. Like yeah, the, <laughs> like there's a story I wrote, which I didn't think was satirical, but people are saying it's satire, um, called Cream Reaper. And it is about um, and a fleet of ice cream vans that go around selling an ice cream that has 50% 50 chance of killing you. And, um, yeah, it, uh, I didn't realise, but I wrote that maybe 2015, I think, and it turned out that the 2017, one of the 2017 food trends is ice cream. And I was really scared when I was writing that um, story that ice cream was too dorky, but... By the time the thing was published, it was just slightly ahead of its time. But as satirists, you're only just ahead. Like it's but that's like your story about port, like portable curiosity. It's a story that the, yeah. the book is named after. Yeah, and the satirist in there. That, yeah, maybe that, that's my last word on satire, and yeah. I should just never write anymore. <laughs> no, don't do that. Because the thing is, like, it might be kind of preaching to the choir or yeah. whatnot. But there is something heartening for the choir. Yeah, I think it consoles people. Yeah, and it kind of still makes you feel like part of something when the world outside and politics is so absurd and everything is so strange and it feels so alien in its reality that you're like, okay, people still get it. Yeah, It's like when you're reading a book that is really funny and you're on a packed train 
and everyone else is on their iPhone or whatever and you laugh and you're like, it's just me and this writer. We've got it. Mm-hmm. The rest of the world can go to fucking hell. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and the way I'm kind of responding to it is um, something that I didn't expect, which is that I write phone on fiction now. So I've just sort of started to um, use myself as a character, a very narcissistic writer, and I'm just doing uh, pieces of non-fic that people are expecting, publishers are expecting be- to be non-fiction, but it's actually just made up shit. Well, I really like about- it. I like being post-truth in that way. Um, I loved the piece you had in Meandern recently. <laughs> Thank you. Of their, their, they're usually very straightforward, what I've been reading column where writers come in and talk about things they've been loving and like what's influencing them and you just did something that I don't think anyone's ever done before, which was write about two fictional <laughs> books that totally skewered the kind of customs and like terrible proclivities of Australian fiction. And I just thought that that was like kind of yeah, me- melding the form or like shifting between forms. Yeah, thanks. Um, I So in that piece, I murder someone with a glass of um, cyanide, champagne, sparkling champagne cyanide. And... Um, it's interesting because I thought that would be a clue to people that it was fiction. <laughs> but in fact, I heard that people were posting it on Facebook, being excited that they, these, two new, these two new releases were about to come out. And I'm like, oh, so you believe the books and that I also killed someone? So I've got to work on my reputation, I think. And also that they were excited about these books that were like amalgams of all yeah. the worst stereotypes or, or, and or some people, some people who are lovely um, friends of mine um, read the beginning, read the whole thing, but then kind of assumed that the beginning was true, which is where, I mean, I think it starts with me saying I was in a bit of a hole on New Year's Eve because a former writing teacher had um, told me all of my work was shit, which is complete a complete lie <laughs> like they, they all thought that the rest of that piece was a lie um but not the beginning maybe if like you, it like, sounded you know, plausible that of course that, someone oh. would tell me all my stuff was shit <laughs> that's not fair and <laughs> um, what about Kanganalipo, which you mentioned just before that a collective i feel like a collective is such an old school like you know, yeah, that's why we called form. it an experimental <laughs> collective, which is it's, it's a joke. So can you tell us about it? It seems like, yeah, that's the thing. It's so self-referential. It's so, it's doing, working on so many levels. But what? Wait, is it real? It's half real. <laughs> <laughs> is it just you? <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got a few people on board. So it's um, Ryan O'Neill, Patrick Lenton, Nick Lowe, uh, Robert Skinner and Jeffrey Phillips from the Canary Press, Eric Dando, Jane Rawson, and we've got a couple of other people who are on board but haven't announced themselves yet. I think they're still hanging on to figure out whether they want to be part of this group. But um, Kanko Nilipo... It kind of started because when um, Alan Varwick um, reviewed Portable Curiosities, he said I was part of a new wave of Australian satire. And I think he regrets it, but actually it was really positive for me because it led to this whole other thing. Because I didn't really know there were other satirists around. And I also didn't even know whether I was writing satire. So I was kind of a bit confused. Um, And so... I was talking to Patrick about it and he's like, I think maybe it's just a general movement of humour. And I thought maybe I should just, uh, we should just start a movement around um, around that, around people who I actually just talk to regularly. That must be, that, that they must be the people I'm actually talking to in a literary sense. So we just decided to put that together. And, um, you know, it's it's a new wave of flim fam, flim flam. <laughs> Um, and mediocrity as well, which is why we haven't still we still haven't gotten a manifesto together. 
Um, and Ryan is still writing the history of the movement. So <laughs> it's a new wave of kangaroo lipo. So Ryan's book, Their Brilliant Careers, is a history of Australian literature. And in it, he has a chapter on the writer Arthur Rutra, who was a, a mediocre experimental writer who started Kangaroo Lipo, I think, in 1970, because, it was 1970, 1970, because I think um, he was feeling betrayed by Ulipo, the, the French experimental um, movement. Um, so we did an Australian one. And so we're just sort of following our, in Arthur's footsteps. I think that's awesome. I mean, I, I do feel like a couple of years ago there were some conversations about why is Australian literature not funny enough and why there are no funny <laughs> writers and, you know, of course it's always there, but also maybe it was a, the time, it felt that the time had come and people were actually looking for things and so there's these groupings of, you know, you are the new wave of satire, you are the yeah. the funny writers. Um, in, they're always going to be artificial to some degree, but maybe that the need to group actually reveals... It actually oh. helped us group together yeah. and um, we're now we're just hanging out a lot, which is good. That's um, amazing. We just did, some of us just did a panel at Noted in Canberra on the weekend and that was great. I mean, it was like the first panel I've done where I've just gotten a bunch of friends together and we just talked about things that we usually talk about, which was comedy and laugh, you know, the role of the lol in literature. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing kind of is uh, coalesces around the idea that, um, Australian literature is dominated by this, um, I think it's, Nick Lowe calls it slammer literature, which I think is slice of life, mm. uh, Anglo micro-realism, where people walk <laughs> down beaches and sit indoors stare, gazing out windows. And um, I mean, it's fine to have that stuff, mm. you know, have things based around the beach and the bush and things like that. But we, we're kind of just interested in more of a spectrum. And um, a lot of the time, I think comedy writing or just any writing that cracks a joke, it's really difficult to win a prize based on that because people assume that it's not uh, serious literature. And so you might get long-listed or short-listed. I mean, I think maybe the landscape's changing at mm. the moment, um, but that's kind of been the history of, of funny writing, um, that it's not serious enough for the, the establishment, really. Yeah, but then ironically you have that um, ac acronym that has already escaped me, Slam. <laughs> Slammer. Um, and that kind of, you know, gritty realism that was around for so long and yeah. kind of was the dominant voice. And it um, often has such a lack of self-awareness yeah. or a lack of humour. That it becomes about a parody own. of itself, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and it's kind of uh, inherently hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we should probably move on to the shout out where we ask our guest to recommend something that they're really into at the moment. Before we, we jump to you, Julie, I did want to give a shout out to our amazing producer, Izzy Roberts, or on the launch of the EWF program recently. Um, it's crazy cool and it covers everything from freelancing for life to podcasting. Very topical. Um, definitely check it out. We'll throw a link up on the website. If you're based in Melbourne, we highly recommend you get on down to the festival that kicks off in June. Um, I personally would recommend going to the Amazing Babes event. That's very um, on point with this podcast. And we're very proud of you, Izzy. So <laughs> we just got a thumbs up from behind the computer screen. Um, and we also wanted to give a little bonus for our listeners. So Julie actually launched the EWF program and did a bit of a reading. Did you want to give a, bit, a slight preamble without any spoilers for our listeners about that reading? It was kind of a program launch about um, – sort of talking about the obstacles that writers go through and how we, each of the guest speakers, personally got over their obstacles. Um, and so I decided to uh, reflect on the time that I may have killed an emerging writer. Dun, dun, dun. For those of you who didn't manage to make it 
to the program launch or even if you did, um, we're lucky enough that we have the audio. So we're going to have Julie's reading at the end of this episode as a little bit of bonus material for you. So that's why this one looks slightly longer. Um, and you're welcome. Julie, what do you what do you want to give a shout out to? <laughs> um, I've been um, I've just bought a copy of Penciled In, which is a literary magazine dedicated to showing um, showcasing art by young Asian Australians, and I just thought it was it's been it's a very interesting um, issue. They've just put out their first issue. The editor is uh, a highly motivated young writer, Yen Rong Wong, who's based in Brisbane. Um, and issue one's um, fear and hope. That's the theme, and uh, there are there are pieces of art and words by some really great writers and artists. Um, some of them are Elizabeth Tan, who just put out a book called Rubik that everyone's raving about. Ramon Loyola, Lachlan Brown, Shuling Chua, and CB Marco. And um, submissions are currently open for issue two, so I'm looking forward to seeing what else they do. Oh, we'll pop a link up on our website oh, cool. for that as well. And I also thought I'd just um, give a shout out to my fashion designer. So um, I was asking, I went to You've see. Really made it. Now. I went to see her <laughs> studio today because um, I'm collaborating with her on an artistic project, and at the moment I'm writing a noir story for um, Sydney Noir. Um, and I've decided to make um, Ryoko, uh, the designer, the main character in the story, and she's a serial killer. So kind of went to a studio, looked at all of her equipment, and we wait, were kind wait, of figuring out sorry. what murder tools to use. I was use. about to say. So <laughs> she's like she holding actually, up scissors going, is this okay? Is she actually a serial killer or you're making her No, she's her quite one? normal. Yeah, cause sorry, did I, was I not very clear <laughs> about that? It's <laughs> her equipment. And it's like... Okay. <laughs> um, so she has a fashion label called Ryoko Tega, and I'm actually wearing stuff that she made and for you me look right fabulous. now. Fabulous! Oh, thanks. So she and I just we just changed my socks today at her studio. So I was wearing stories. black socks, and she's like, them. "I think you, I think you need orange." So um, it's it's an interesting collaboration, which means I get free clothes sent in the mail every month, oh and uh, I'm writing this story about her. So it's really cool. That is amazing. That is awesome. How do I get a fashion designer? I know. <laughs> if anyone would like to be our fashion designer, we're going to give a shout out to you. <laughs> and it's interesting. Podcasting is the perfect <laughs> medium for it as well. <laughs> I mean, I think the interesting thing is that um, I've discovered that collaborating with people outside my discipline is really fascinating and kind of generates new ideas. Um, and Rio's sort of collaborating with Damon Young, the philosopher at the moment, and they're talking about functional clothes from a philosophical point of view. Um, yeah, so it's something I highly recommend, just trying to get outside literary fiction a little bit. Yes, that's always the hope, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, we should also do our last arrogant aunt question for this season. No, listen to me. No, listen to me. No, listen to me. Frontier Sakai. I give myself... Very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. You don't need to be helped any longer. You've always had the power to go back to Kansas. Frontier Sakaya. Arrogant Aunts is the segment where we answer questions from you, the listener, with an authority we just don't have. It's an exercise in imposter syndrome for all of us. Um, we decided to save the big one for last. This question comes from an our original call out and it's a simple three word question. Why are men? 
Why? <laughs> um, I'm sure we can wrap this up in about five minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I it actually made me um, think immediately of the woke misogynist essay that's kind of going around at the moment um, on a website called Fusion, I believe it is, and it's incredible. So um, we were just trying to explain the idea of woke misogyny to Julie before we kind of went on, and it was the idea of, of a, a male ally who self-identifies as a feminist but then does awful misogynistic things um, even though they're kind of like, oh, well, I called called that guy out on their violence or their abuse but then they go and do it in their own time. Um, there's also a really amazing satirical piece on Reductress which is quite on theme um, about this exact thing. So why are men, guys? This makes me think of that story about a philosophy student who had to do their final paper and it was like a, I don't know, this is an urban myth clearly, but like it was like a three-hour exam and they went in and the question was why and they were meant to like explain the meaning of the universe and this student just wrote why not and got a perfect score. <laughs> <laughs> so is your answer why not men? Cause do I get a perfect <laughs> score? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I mean, why, why are men? I think that that's, it's one of life's great questions. Um, would the answer though to that so if it was why are men would it be hashtag not all men (laughs) would that be the response yes I think that's usually the response (laughs) isn't it from the woke misogynist Julie do you want to try I I actually have no answer to this question it's something that I probably have to would have to think about for a week before I came back with an essay on it well, yeah, I think the whole point in this is that we, we don't have any answers. We never have any answers and this, this is the big one. Surprise! Yeah. Um, I also recently reread The Scum Manifesto. So if you are asking why are men, I think it's a really fun one to sit down and read if you want to um, read some kind of ranty, angry lesbian uh, theory from 60s, I think it was. Um, she famously went on to shoot Andy Warhol. But she kind of just self-published this this crazy book. Oh wow! I um, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. So it's, so, yeah, what does scum stand for again? It's like Society for Cutting Up Men. Oh. I think that's what it stands for. So, um, like literally, I uh, wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but yeah, it's quite angry and fun and ranty. So if you are asking yourself why are men, maybe read the Scum Manifesto and then cut some up. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to encourage that. There's not been a literally. Lot of, yeah. There's been a lot of killing and murder and cutting up talk. So I'm really glad that we're going to finish. That's how on, I make conversations yeah. turn all the time. <laughs> I'm really excited that we're finishing on your reading that's about murdering someone. What a really happy ending to our season. I actually love it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming in. So great. It's to been have my you pleasure, here. Ronnie. This is us for this season. I know. It's sad, but happy. But we'll be back. Yeah, that's the plan. We're hoping to be back. Thank you so much. Thanks to Izzy, our producer. Rainbow Cham for supplying us with the amazing theme music. Can never never stop listening to that. So good. Creative Victoria for funding it. The Melbourne Library Service and the Rereaders for partnering with us. And all the listeners. Um, We love you. You rule. Don't forget to hit us up with suggestions for season two. And we hope you'll listen again soon when we're back soon. Hysteria is created by women for women, but also anyone who wants to listen. For links to everything we've discussed and to get in touch, check out our website, hysteriapodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at hysteriapod. Hysteria is produced by me, Izzy Roberts-Orr. 
and co-presented by the Rereaders and the Melbourne Library Service. Supported by Creative Victoria. Our incredible theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and is available on her new record, Spacings. Sisteria is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to the elders of the land this podcast reaches. We hope you tune in again soon. Uh, This is a photo for Twitter. So if you want to be in it, smile. If you don't, close your eyes. Excellent. At the start of this year, I had a bit of a crisis. I felt like I'd arrived at complete mental burnout. It wasn't writer's block, it was utter exhaustion. I wandered around listless, I had trouble producing any kind of work, and I had trouble seeing the point in doing anything. Why did this happen? My first full-length book, Portable Curiosities, had come out in 2016. I'd expected it to be a defining moment that would change the circumstances of my life. And in some ways it did. I mean, my crowning achievement last year was that I slathered oil all over my big butt and took a naked selfie at the Queensland Literary Awards that broke the internet. (laughs) But no one can ever prepare you for how tough the life of a celebrity emerging writer is. Having older women throw their panties at you on the street saying, hey, hot stuff, show us your short story. (laughs) I mean, now when I walk down the street, I have to wear sunglasses that are so dark I run into street poles. (laughs) People often say there are certain signs to look for to know that as a celeb emerging writer, you're starting to burn out. Know your triggers. For me, probably the warning sign was that I may have ended up murdering another emerging writer on New Year's Eve. I mean, it's not news to many of you, Adelaide Hegarty was a rising star, an acquaintance of many of yours, and quite honestly, not to speak badly of the dead, a massive cow. (laughs) That moment you abruptly kill another writer out of jealousy that her career is about to eclipse yours that a writer like her is going to hog all the literary prizes and opportunities and funding and leave nothing for anyone else, well, that moment of murder, it's the sort of obstacle to the creative process that brings life into perspective. I mean, it was so sudden, it wasn't even in my daily horoscope, how did things get so out of control? And what lessons can I impart to you tonight to teach you, lesser beings, how to keep (laughs) your creative fires burning even when you're walking down the street in your own second-rate sunglasses and things seem kind of dark? I have to say, the lowest point in my literary career was being taken into police custody. Languishing in my cell as a murder suspect, the obvious question was... How would I keep going as a writer? My friend Jeff, the illustrator who I may have tried to pin the murder on, was in the next cell. When the police weren't listening, Jeff whispered really unhelpful advice to me, like maybe if you were less of a narcissist, things would get better, and maybe you need to get some help because you're completely unhinged. (laughs) Suffice to say, being illiterate 
illustrators never quite get the moral of the story. <laughs> and the real moral of this story was that writing leads to murder. <laughs> How did I solve this creative obstacle? Well, I found big magic, which is to say I quit writing. And all I do now is go around to emerging writers' festivals collecting appearance money. <laughs> How did I find Big Magic, I hear you wonder? That night in jail, I suddenly remembered something that the acclaimed writer Amanda Laurie once told me. She said that she advises all emerging writers to marry a dentist. <laughs> and so when the police were forced to release me because of lack of evidence, I went straight to my dentist, lay in his chair, opened my mouth and seduced him. <laughs> the wedding is next May. We just sent all our guests a save the date appointment reminder card with a free toothbrush. <laughs> in sum, the universe conspired to bring me here tonight to tell you that if I can marry a dentist, you can too. <laughs> But for those of you irrational enough not to sell out in this difficult climate, or for those of you unattractive enough to rebel your local doctor of teeth, <laughs> I've decided to share with you the secret of what used to fuel my award-winning writing, what kept me going in tough times, no matter the obstacles. And that secret was honouring the seven deadly sins. Let's start with lust. Lust after people and put them on unrealistic pedestals. And when they reject and disappoint you, write about it as a form of revenge. <laughs> Gluttony. Stress eat discount Pringles and you'll have something to distract you from your poverty. <laughs> Greed. Find all the drugs your friends haven't tried and get them all in you. One I'm really liking at the moment is Brugmansia, which prompted one young man in Germany to cut off his own tongue and penis with secateurs. Like Pringles, secateurs are a good distraction from your terrible life. <laughs> How's the Auslan going? <laughs> Envy. If you now lack the balls to kill your fellow writers, let your jealousy of them fuel you to become more critically acclaimed than they are so you can crow over them while you're all dying in a hovel together anyway on budget night. <laughs> Let's move on to the last three deadly sins. Jeff wrote this bit for me in jail. He said, people will like me more if I read this out, so I will because I'm always happy to welcome new admirers even if you're total morons. Sloth. All you have to do is wake up every morning, take baby steps to your desk, sit down and never get back up. Put one word down, add another, keep going. Every writer has to walk this path, but no one says you can't walk it in slow-mo. Do not bother going to festival program launches. You've all already failed. <laughs> Pride. There is pride to be felt in being a writer. Your work is somewhat important, even if society tells you it is useless. Stay true to your vision and do good work. Rid yourself of any attachment to the outcomes of that good work. Let my experience with the justice system serve as a lesson to you all. 
that publishing a book or the equivalent will not make you happier, even if it brings success. Publication is never the magic bullet that will solve your life problems. In the end, the joy is in the work. Also, take pride in your work because history is shaped by power. And part of that power is about who tells the most compelling story. This post-truth moment is a gift on a platter for those of you who write overtly political work. Fight bullshit stories with better stories. And even if no one publishes, reads your work or listens to you, your own life story will end up interesting. Being a writer is a weird adventure. You may be poor and stressed and poorly dressed, but in choosing a life of the mind, you will never be boring. And finally, wrath. Balanced rage can fuel creativity. Write the hottest stuff you can. I mean, you're here for such a short period of time. You're a blip in the universe. And so being aware of your own insignificance and the fact that life is going to kill you anyway, you may as well write well for as long as you can stand it. Work hard so that you hasten your early death. <laughs> Set everything alight. As Ryan O'Neill, the great Australian writer and unproven arsonist, has never officially said, burn, baby, burn. 